when you talk about uh, when you talk about the keys, um, you know, when that announcement of, of God's law in a specific way, along with its punishment, that, you know, you announce to a person because of your sin, you have forfeited th- the forgiveness Jesus has won for you. And the, the first knee jerk reaction is, well, so what I'm saying, Pastor, what I'm hearing, Pastor Hagen, is that you're perfect and I'm not. Um, nobody's perfect. That's what we call a red herring argument. Um, we should have a, a logic class. Maybe we'll have that, you know, next, next fall. What else? Anything else that we might have um, to deal with either sin or our perception of guilt? Joe. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah i think i think that's a good one um and and normally when we think of this you know you think through like god's great exchange is um well nobody's perfect um everybody's doing it i'm a, i lead a pretty good life um and then the other ones that kind of come to mind are i'm trying and i'm getting better I do some good to balance out the bad. I may be bad, but I'm not that guy. I'm not as, you know, I, I may have killed somebody, but it was by accident. Or even if it was on purpose, it wasn't 6 million like some of the dictators of the last century. Um, but then a major one that, that the original God's Great Exchange didn't have back in the 70s is, is just a question mark. You know, find some way to forget about it. Get so wrapped up in my business, my career, my my attempts to become financially independent and retire early, um, or or find some sort of substance that will let me sail away and forget about life for a little while. I think those are those are the major ways, and um, and I think they can all be operative within a person's mind or heart to a different you know different degrees, and also um, that's where the the issues of the things that our government says are legal versus not legal also comes into play um, because, you know, alcohol certainly has an effect on the mind. Um, and I say that as somebody who grew up in, you know, one of the drunkest counties in the entire nation, <laughs> alcohol is a, has a certain, definitely has an effect on a person's mind. Um, and, but so does, um, so does, you know, things that people may smoke, um, including the things that are legal over there, but not over here um, that, when the government legalizes those things, there's less of a restraint on the way that people deal with guilt. And it's, and in a sense, it is easier. Um, and, and a lot of times that guilt will, will show up in different ways. Um, not just, it doesn't usually just stay as guilt. It will often, you know, show up in, um, either health concerns or other emotional or what we, what we call mental health concerns. Um, that issue of unresolved guilt. Lois, did you have something? Okay. I just saw you raise your hand. Sorry. <laughs> cool. Um, I know. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and just that idea, um, you know, thanks be to God that, that our Lord Jesus Christ carried all sin and he died and rose, um, not just to deal with our perception of guilt, um, because society might say you have nothing to be guilty about, nothing to feel guilty about. Um, but Jesus dealt with our actual guilt, the actual guilt of our sin, um, not just our feelings about our guilt. And he did so by taking all sin upon himself, dying and rising from the dead, which gets us into, that's probably familiar uh, to you, 
um, the two natures in Jesus Christ, his person. Um, and I don't know how much of this was actually in the, actually in the book or just kind of, kind of created as we go along. But when you talk about the, the two natures of Jesus Christ, what are the, the two natures that we often talk about? All right. So the divine and the human. Um, and, um, and so I guess we'll talk about the divine side first, that we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Um, and so the reason why we can call Jesus uh, divine is, um, and refer to him as divine is because the Bible does, um, uses divine names for Jesus, um, calls him true God, calls him the incarnate God, calls him Lord, um, divine attributes, which means that he does, uh, he, he has characteristics that only God has. Um, and so, you know, when Peter or whoever it is says, Lord, you know, all things, um, they're testifying to the truth that Jesus does know all things. Um, in John chapter three, which is, I believe our gospel reading for this coming Sunday. If you look at that, when you get home, um, there's that part where it says like the son of man who came from heaven, I think it's in verse 12, or maybe it's verse 18. It's somewhere right in there, right around, um, verse 16. <laughs> and, and the footnote is the son of man who is in heaven, um, which actually we'll, we'll talk about in, in just a minute. Um, we'll look that up, I believe. So divine attributes, Jesus didn't give up any of his divine attributes or any of his divine characteristics when he, um, when he became a human, when he took on our human flesh. And then divine works, um, that he does things that only God can do. Um, you, you think of Jesus healing the paralytic who was lowered down through the roof, that the Pharisees are like, you know, who is he to forgive sin when he said, son, your sin is forgiven. And then Jesus says, well, so that you can know that the son of man has the power to forgive sin. He says, get up, take your mat and go home. Um, two divine works right there where he, number one, he forgives sin. And then number two, he actually heals this man from his paralysis so that this man can walk out like right then and there with no rehab whatsoever. Um, so that's kind of the, the first part is that Jesus Christ is true God. back up just a little bit. Um, and the fact that Jesus Christ is true God, um, and where, where that also comes in is the appearances of the Son of God in the Old Testament, um, that there are times like when we you hear about the angel of the Lord, like the angel of the Lord spoke to Abraham when Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac. And, um, and he's described as the angel of the Lord, and then he's speaking as the Lord. Um, so we, we typically identify many or most of the appearances of the angel of the Lord, if you use that phrase, in the Old Testament with the Son of God. Or the, um, the other term you might use is the pre-incarnate Christ, Christ before he became incarnate. Um, we don't refer to him as Jesus when he shows up in the Old Testament because he has not yet assumed a human nature at that point. Um, he has not you know, become human. Um, and so when we talk about the appearances of the angel of the, Lo uh, angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, what you'll see is that it's somebody who is referred to as distinct from God, and yet who um, speaks or acts as only God can, or only God does. Um, and so like another, another one would be 
Gideon's parents, or maybe it's Samson's parents, um, when the angel of the Lord appears to them, and then, um, then they bring an offering, and then he touches it with his staff and burns up whatever food they had brought out for him. Um, and another possible one, probable one, I would say, is Passover evening when the angel of the Lord, um, or the angel of death, sometimes called, uh, went through the land of Egypt to put to death those who did not have the blood of the, the lamb on their doorposts. Um, so that's when we talk about true God, and that's that's often the part that we emphasize, um, try not to overemphasize, I suppose, <laughs> because the other aspect of it is that this Jesus Christ is also true man. Like First Timothy 2 says, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so, you know, when he says between God and men, obviously talking about people, um, although it is, and so Jesus is fully human, just as you or I, that is one of the, the things that you would notice, I suppose, um, in the Nicene Creed, when we have the Nicene Creed in our bulletin, um, it doesn't match up with either the red hymnal or even the new blue hymnal, because the new blue hymnal didn't correct the error that was from the red hymnal, <laughs> um, but that we, we say that Jesus was made man. Um, that he became fully, fully human for us humans and for our salvation. Um, and so that, that's kind of the, the, the funny quirk of the human, of the English language, that when we say Jesus was made man, um, especially in, in a world that doesn't understand um, gender the same way that we did last year, um, then we, we also confess that Jesus became fully human, as well as the fact that Jesus became a, um, a, a male human. Um, so I don't know how much that'll play in it over the next few years, but the main point is that Jesus is fully human just as you or I. Um, and so we talked about that this past Sunday with the temptation of Jesus in the desert. Um, and, and where it kind of touched on our discussion of the human soul and the organ, the organs of the soul. You might remember that talking about, um, logic and emotion and will that Jesus has all of those things as well, that he, um, that he has a human, human mind and human emotions and a human will with rational soul and human flesh, I think is the way the Athanasian creed puts it. And so we say that Jesus is fully man, just as, and fully human, just as you or I, uh, for the same reasons why we say he is true God, because he has human names, um, where he, you know, when he's circumcised on the eighth day after his birth, or we would say, you know, a week later, um, that he was given the name Jesus, that he has human attributes, um, that he experiences things that people experience. He became hungry. He became tired. He needed to sleep. He took time to get away from the crowd and to have some rest. Um, and that he also does human works, um, does human things. Um, and so Jesus chose to walk, even though as God at the same time, he is always omnipresent, Jesus chose to walk from Nazareth down to Jerusalem or everywhere in between. Um, and with the exception of a few times, Jesus chose to take a boat across the Sea of Galilee rather than walking across the waves. Um, even though, you know, he, he chose to 
He chose to experience life in all the, all the same way as you or I accept without sin. So in that sense, um, if you're following along on the chart um, from lesson 10 or chapter 10, um, Jesus' person, that he is true man and true God, you know, nothing, there probably isn't anything exceptionally controversial or um, even necessarily confusing on this first page. Um, but it's, you know, a little bit of a more thorough review. Um, combined in one person by the, by the virgin birth or through the, I would say, through the miracle of the incarnation. Um, and, and sometimes the question comes up, you know, how could it be, you know, where people try to understand how Jesus is the son of Mary and yet he is without original sin. Um, the Roman Catholic Church tries to just kick the can back the, up the road a generation or two and say that Mary was, was conceived without sin because her mother was conceived without sin. And then they make the logical leap that if Mary was conceived without sin, that Mary did not sin at all, and that Mary was also just assumed up to, into heaven, you know, much like Elijah was, I suppose. Um, and so that would be... The, the assumption of Mary up into heaven is actually relatively recent, you know, within the last, I think, I think it was in the mid, um, mid to late 1800s, 19th century. Um, but the, the idea that Mary was conceived, that immaculate conception, that Mary was conceived without original sin, that one is a little bit older. And um, I mean, I haven't, I didn't look up a date on that. Um, but what you will typically see with Roman Catholic belief is that it's usually a belief, you know, a common belief of the, the common person in the pew for a period of time. And then the, the Pope eventually makes a decree to make that part of their canon law, that it is also um, official church teaching. Um, and so, you know, the, the, simple, the simple explanation is that this was a miracle, you know, exactly as the angel said in Luke chapter one, that the power of the most high will overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be, the one to be born from you will be called the Son of God. Um, you know, humanly speaking, he did derive his human nature from his, from his mother. Um, and the only explanation, you know, if, <laughs> if we needed one, was that God miraculously um, made it so that, you know, Mary's contribution, you know, so to speak, the, the, the cell, the egg, um, was purified from sin. If we needed that explanation, that would be it. <laughs> and we don't need to say anything more other than that. And usually um, we just leave it at the, the miracle of the incarnation, which is celebrated. Um, actually, this year will be the day before our church anniversaries Sunday, uh, March 25th is the festival uh, or the feast of the Annunciation is the announcement to Mary. And we typically... That, that's when it falls is because it's nine months before um, nine months before Christmas. And we typically connect the announcement to by the angel to Mary with um, with the miracle of the incarnation happening right around that time or shortly thereafter. So far, so good. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and so together with that, now we're going to talk about um, on, on your sheet, kind of the, the unique contributions of his human nature and his divine nature. Um, and the first one, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman born under law to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. 
And this section from Galatians chapter four, when he says the full rights of sons, he's not discluding women from this. What he's saying is that we have all of the legal claim that a son in their, in their society would have, that each of us has the same legal claim to this inheritance that God has promised to those um, exactly the way that the, the firstborn son would inherit the majority of, of an estate. Um, and so we talk now about the, the unique things that the human nature and the divine nature contribute to the person and work of Jesus. Um, the first thing is that as a man, he lives under God's demands, lives under God's law. And, um, and so yeah, you think about that, and that makes sense that God isn't subject to his laws. He is above the law. He creates the law. He says what is good or evil, and it is good or evil because God has said so. Um, you think of this in respect to, to time, that God dwells in eternal timelessness because time is created by God, uh, the same way that his law is created by God. And so as God, Jesus was not subject to God's law at all. Um, and so he had to become human in order to be subject to God's law. And our verse of the day, or our gospel acclamation from this past Sunday, uh, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. And so that, that is on the other side, um, where the, the human nature um, contributes the, the responsibility, the culpability for God's law, the responsibility to live under God's law. Um, his divine nature contributes the ability to keep that law perfectly. Um, a little bit more. <laughs> All right. So his, his divine nature contributes the ability to keep that law perfectly, um, that you or I cannot keep God's law perfectly. And yet Jesus, Jesus did. And the reason he did so was because as true God, he did not fall for any temptation of the devil. Um, and, and he did keep God's law perfectly. Now we're back on the, the human side. Uh, since the children have flesh and blood, he also, or he too, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of the death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Um, and the power of death there, referring to the devil as the one having the power of death, um, is, you know, tied up in the idea that that sin brings death. And the devil is the one who is the liar from the beginning. He is the one who is, is a murderer, um, is another term that John uses for him. And so the devil brings death, not that he has the ability to take life from people necessarily, um, or that he has all the decision-making on death, but that his, his work is to bring death and destruction wherever God has created life. Um, I think that's basically it. And so... As God, um, God doesn't die. God is eternal. God has no beginning and no end. God is timeless. Um, human beings are the ones who are subject to death. Human beings have the ability to die. And so Jesus, in the person and work of Jesus, that his human nature contributes the ability to die. Um, and you and I know that 
he who was without sin did not have any reason for himself to die, um, but he had to be human in order to be able to die. And uh, this, this next one, um, I'll have a little bit more for you to jot in in just a second. Uh, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, and, and if you have your, well, I'll get to that in just a second. So as human, um, his human nature contributes the ability to die. Um, but you and I, our death will only count for ourselves. That as God, um, the fact that it is God's death um, is what adds value to this, to his death. That his life, his death has infinite value because he's God. Um, and if you have your Bible nearby, we'll turn to um, Psalm 49. Psalm 49, um, especially verses seven through nine. And, um, and this, this comes up, um, well, it'll come up here when you talk about Jehovah's Witnesses in just a minute. Um, but verses seven, eight, and nine, do we have a volunteer to read for us? Thanks, Ashley, go ahead. All right, excellent. Um, and as you as you can kind of tell, translating translating the Psalms is is more challenging than translating like the Book of Genesis. Uh, first of all, because it's poetry, and then second of all, when you have a a wide variety of terms that you might use here when translating it into English, you have to make a decision that also hinges on how you interpret the Psalm. Um, and so whether it's, I, I like the, the NIV, um, cause that's what I've been accustomed to until the recent past, I suppose. Uh, but the EHV is, is very similar. Uh, but the point there in verses seven, eight, and nine, um, and the reason for looking at that is that that statement that no man can give his life as a ransom for another, that the ransom for life is costly and no payment is ever enough. Um, and that if Jesus were only true man, then his life, he would be able to you know, pay for his own sin. Um, but that would be it <laughs> that he would be able to ransom his own life, but that would be it. Um, or you think of um, those who have rejected the, the truth of Jesus as their savior and who are, who are now in hell. Um, no payment is ever enough and no one can redeem the life of another. Um, but I think uh, that verse 49 is especially helpful to, to keep tucked in the back of your mind um, as, as further proof or further certification from Scripture that Jesus has to be true God as well as true man. Okay. Any questions? That is maybe the fastest we've ever gone through that that particular section um 
Although I would, I would probably switch that middle part that the, the miracle of the incarnation is, uh, is the primary reason and the virgin birth is, you know, just the proof of the incarnation. Which gets us to the next question. Make a list of reasons why denying Jesus as true God is eternally dangerous. Yeah. All right. Let's see what else. Why is denying Jesus as true God eternally dangerous? All right. He's the only way to heaven. Yeah. <laughs> right there. Lois. Yeah, we'll incur his eternal wrath. Um, <laughs> incur, yeah. And, uh, and, and also then um, on top of that, that Jesus, if Jesus is not truly, truly true God, um, then, then we aren't saved and you're left to your own devices to figure out how do you, you know, how do you figure this out between you and God when God has a standard of holiness and righteousness and, um, and we don't live up to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, um, and, and to, and to, to assert that Jesus is not true God, um, goes against the witness of scripture from beginning to end. And, and that is, that is an issue for the hardness of one's heart and a state of impenitence um, or unrepentance that, that you're going against what scripture says. And therefore you have some other, you know, some other standard that is going to be um, the standard that you use as what is true. How about the, the flip side of that? Um, explain the comfort of knowing that Jesus has experienced human life like you. Yep. Uh-huh. Hungry, tired, sleepy, stressed. So yeah, definitely all of those. Um, like, like Palm Sunday, when he comes over the crest of the hill and he sees Jerusalem and he's like, we breaks out in weeping sobs, even as his disciples are all singing, blessed is he who comes in the, in the name of the Lord. Um, because he wanted, he's like Jerusalem. I long to gather you together like a hen gathers her chicks and you weren't willing, um, that, that Jesus, you know, he has human emotion about these things and even Jesus, um, chose to work through a way that is resistible. And he had people, even um, during his ministry, his own, you know, half siblings, um, as far as we know, turning their backs on him or if, um, if he was a little, you know, needed to go to the mental, mental institution for a while. 
I think one thing that was brought out um, in a Lenten series a number of years ago is that that you and I have an experience of temptation where eventually we learn, like, don't touch the hot stove because it's hot. Um, don't give into that temptation because it doesn't solve any problems and it just makes life miserable. Um, and in that sense, you know, kind of as we grow through life um, and different temptations come up, we, we learn also from experience to avoid these things. And what was a temptation at one stage in life is not really a temptation, at least in the same way, at a different stage in life. Because um, we learned that by experience. And yet Jesus didn't have didn't have the experience of going through, you know, with a sin and, and to have a temptation decrease in its temptingness, I suppose. Um, but that, that he himself, um, he, he just had to keep resisting temptation, um, no matter, no matter in what form that temptation came. All right, how about this one? Number three, react to the following and uh, correct the ones who are incorrect. We even have a Greek word uh, tucked in there tonight. Uh, the first one, the incarnation is a profound mystery and a glorious miracle. What do you think? True, absolutely. Um, yeah, like the greatest miracle of all time, that the infinite God takes up residence within his own sinful, finite human creation. Um, and nobody saw it. <laughs> nobody saw the miracle. Uh, Gesundheit. The second one. What do you think? The Mary, the mother of God, is called Theotokos because she is co-redeemer with Jesus. False. What is false about this? All right, yeah, she is, she is not co-redeemer. So, yeah, so Theotokos is uh, the God-bearer, um, testifying specifically to the fact that the, the child who was born from her, born of her, is the son of God. Um, co-redeemer is that Rome, so Theotokos is, um, it comes from the Greek Orthodox Church, uh, that term at least. The idea of co-redeemer or co-redemptrix is uh, I think the actual term is that she cooperates in in your salvation, and um, and also you know as an extension of that fact, the fact that she cooperates in your salvation in you know assisting through her own you know sinless life or whatever, is that if you if you want to ask God anything, um, you could pray directly to Jesus, but you probably have a better chance talking to his mom. And then having her bring your request to, to Jesus. Um, and it makes her makes her on par. And in some cases, even um, of greater importance than Jesus. And that is incorrect. Uh, third one, if Jesus were born with an earthly father, he would still be the son of God. False. I have to come up with some more challenging questions. <laughs> <laughs> how about the next one yeah just wait till we get to the uh the apotelismatic genus that's the fun one uh the fourth one because of jesus miraculous conception because jesus miraculous conception united the divine nature with the human nature he did not receive original sin yeah yeah 
and that that through that miracle of the incarnation, um, he was born not in the natural way. Um, and so if you read through like the Augsburg Confession, um, you know, basically our foundational Lutheran documents that talk about original sin, they'll use this phrase, they'll say that every person born in the natural way is born with original sin. Um, and so you're like, well, immediately that that doesn't include Adam and Eve, that they were not born with original sin, but they uh, took it on themselves when they sinned against God. And it also does not include um, Jesus Christ because he was not born in the natural way. Uh, he did not have a human father. Um, yeah, I guess that was it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and that is, that is um, where a number of the earlier uh, theologians kind of, you know, thought about and, and said, well, you know, this, this at least makes sense and is consistent. And, um, and that's kind of where Paul ends up in, um, in Romans 5, when he talks about the first Adam and the second Adam, that, that, you know, each one created, you know, became human in a miraculous way, Adam through, you know, God taking dirt and breathing into him the breath of life, and, um, and the Son of God becoming human through the miracle of the incarnation. Um, and in that sense, that each one not born in the natural way was born, you know, became alive without without original sin. Definitely. So that gets us actually, I have a have, have one other handout first. All right, and you can just uh, leave the extras on the table over there. Uh, the first one, this little chart, um, having a bit of a, a balance, balance to it, a balancing act, um, talks about some of the ways in which, in which you know, the discussion of the person work of Jesus has gone off the rails um, over time, or and, and most of this is like before the fourth century AD, um, you know, like the first 300, 400 years of the Christian church after Christ, they're basically figuring out how do we talk about God and how do we, how do we demonstrate and talk about um, God in a way that is biblical and scripturally accurate. Um, and so, you know, right there in the middle is, is the balance um, that, 
the divine nature and the human nature are united in the one person, Jesus Christ. Um, and that was, that was confessed at the council of Chalcedon, um, I think in 381 or maybe even before, after that, I should look that up. Um, Cal council of Chalcedon and Chalcedonian Christianism, Christianity, you might say. And then, um, boy, do you want to go left, right, up, or down? <laughs> we'll, we'll go up. Uh, we'll go up first. Um, Nestorianism. If you have an ism, it's probably a bad thing. Um, named after Nestorius. Nestorianism said that there was a divine nature and that there's a human nature and that they just kind of lived within the same human being, but they weren't actually united in any way. Um, kind of like the idea that you know, you have two boards and you can glue them together and there's no actual unity between the boards. They're just two separate boards. Um, that was the, the illustration that he kind of used. Um, and we, we deny that, you know, he is, he is one person. And, and when we talk about person, we're, you know, not just talking about like person as in singular of people, but person as in um, like the second person of the Trinity has taken the humanity upon himself that he has um and you'll see this when we confess the athanasian creed next that the entire like second half of the athanasian creed is how do we talk about the person of jesus um so it's not you know what it isn't isn't that there are, are two separate natures and they're just kind of operating in the same space within the same you know flesh <laughs> um yeah, kind of like multiple personality disorder. If you want, if you think of it that way, I think that's a good illustration, definitely. And then, and then, because then you have no certainty as well. You know, aside from the fact that you're denying scriptural truth, then you're like, okay, is he saying this as God or is he just saying this as his own human opinion? And which one should we listen to here? Um, if you go down from that, the you know, getting out of balance that way is um, monophysitism. Mono meaning one. Um, so monophysitism is that the human and the divine are combined into one new thing. And, um, and so you picture um, like you put cream in your coffee, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> then it's like it's or, or you combine blue food coloring and yellow food coloring. Then you get green food coloring, something entirely new, something entirely different that is neither blue nor yellow and you can't separate it out. Uh, monophysitism says that um, in some way the divine and human were mixed together into one into one person. Um, on the right, divine but not fully human, docetism um, comes from a Greek word dokao, which means to simply seem, to seem to be. So you would say Jesus only seemed to be um, human that he, he docaoed to be human, uh, that he seemed to be human, but he was actually divine, but he, you know, he pretended to be tired and he pretended to need food, even though he didn't need any of these things, um, which that's also false because that's going against the clear words of scripture, describing him with divine or human names, attributes, and doing human things. Um, that's a docetism. And then the last one, um, adoptionism or Arianism, um, and adoptionism or Arianism is um, alive and well in the Jehovah's Witnesses. That's the biggest group of Arians in you know alive today, named after Arius, 
Um, and hopefully, I haven't looked recently, in the, in the new blue hymnal, if you look at the Athanasian Creed, it gives like a short paragraph of history on um, who is Athanasius, that Athanasius opposed Arius at one of those early councils in like 351 or 381, I think it was 381, um, where Arius said, well, he's, he is, um, he's human, and then, and then God named him his son. Um, but he's not, he's not fully God, um, the same way that God the Father is. And the way that the Jehovah's Witness will, Witnesses will talk about this, and they are very squirmy with their terminology, is they'll say he's the Son of God, but he's not God, in the same way that God the Father is God. And so they, they take the terms that of you know, Father, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they take these terms not as a description of the relationship between the first and second persons of the Trinity, but as an actual cause and effect relationship, that one is the literal one who fathered the other, um, that the Father is, you know. <laughs> and so he is not actually... He's not God the same way, but he's, he's the son of God, which is still greater or more than your eye, but he's not, you know, God, God. Um, and bottom line there is Psalm 49, that if he's not truly God, then his death only counts for himself. Um, and like, hooray, you, you saved yourself, but it means nothing, nothing good, nothing beneficial for you or me. So that's, um, heresies in a nutshell <laughs> and this is this is basically the reason why we have um have creeds like the apostles creed the uh, nicene creed the athanasian creed together we call those the three ecumenical creeds that if somebody is christian then they will agree with what those they will hopefully confess those creeds um, but they will also agree with the doctrine that those creeds um, propose i do have a, another handout that i forgot um in the office there about the Asian Creed, because sometimes there's um, so if you hang around for a couple minutes after we finish tonight, then I'll run a few more copies of that. The other handout um, deals with the, the three genera, or the genuses, if you will, the, the genera. Um, and those are on your worksheet. And if you look at that, um, supposed to draw some lines, match the title, picture, and description to each one to complete the diagram below. That, let's see. On the right, the picture on the right is, is what we call the idiomatic genus. Um, is that each, and that's the proper description below it. Um, this was maybe less than helpful, I guess. Um, that the, the picture on the right is with the two arrows pointing at Jesus and the description below it. Each nature contributes um, what is unique to that nature. Each nature cooperates with the other nature in the person of Christ. Okay, those, uh, those, never mind, those descriptions aren't quite working out. Let's look at this other picture first, um, and then we'll come back to this. When we talk about the, the three genera, this is the, the handout um, 
When we talk about the three genera, we're really talking about the different ways in which we can describe the person of Jesus. Um, do we have it here? There it is. In which we can describe the person of Jesus. And the three ways that we use are the idiomatic genus, the majestic genus, and the apotelismatic genus. <laughs> so it's like, uh, okay. Um, and when we have those three, we call them the three genera. Uh, fit page, and we'll go like that. We call them the three genera. Um, and the first one, the idiomatic genus, is is these are all overlapping ways of describing and talking about the the person of Jesus as both true God and true man. I guess that's the the starting point. And so when you talk about the idiomatic aspect of that, that idioms, um, that which is unique to the human nature is contributed by the human nature. And that which is unique to the divine nature is contributed by the divine nature. And so the human nature contributes the reality that he is born under law and that he is able to die. Um, the divine nature contributes the fact that, um, that he keeps God's law perfectly and that, that death accounts, accounts for all people. Um, that's when we talk about the, the idiomatic genus, that each, each nature contributes what is unique to that nature. Um, the second part, the majestic genus, this is a one-way arrow that, that all the, the gifts and all that God is, is given and, um, and placed within um, this person Jesus, of, of Jesus. So that's the description there at the bottom of the page. At the moment of unition or incarnation, the divine nature gives idioms or perfections to the human nature in, in, in the abstract, that is within the purity of the nature per se, so to speak, um, and that this communication uh, lasts forever. So what does that mean? <laughs> that, um, that this person, Jesus, did not have um, any shortfallings within his, within his human nature, and that all that God is, um, all the characteristics of God could be said of being um, an aspect of the person of Jesus Christ. That within Jesus, this union of the two natures within the one man, the one person, Jesus, is what we call the hypostatic union. There's another, there's another Greek term for us. And so when we talk about this, we, uh, the idiomatic aspect, I suppose, is the fact that each nature contributes what is unique to that nature. The majestic um, genus is the fact that um, the divine nature contributes more. Um, that the divine nature contributes all of its characteristics so that anything you can say about God, you can say about Jesus. And that's that portion from, from John chapter 3, where Jesus is talking with Nicodemus and says, the son of man who came from heaven. And the footnote says, you know, or other Greek manuscripts, the son of man who is in heaven. Um, and that is true, that Jesus could talk about himself as the, the son of man who is in heaven, because as God, he did not give up his omnipresence, um, that as God, he did not give up his omniscience, although for a period of time, he chose to refrain from using those things. That's what we call the, uh, the period of his humiliation. 
it's where it's kind of difficult to talk about talk about all these things without pulling in like a half dozen other terms. Um, and so the humiliation is the period of, of Jesus' life from his incarnation until his death, where he chose to refrain from the full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor. We'll probably talk about this next time. <laughs> um, but the humiliation has nothing to do with being embarrassed. Um, it's the fact that Jesus refrained from using um, some of his divine power and glory, and he basically concealed the fact that he is God. Um, most of the time, there are times when he revealed that he is God, such as on the Mount of Transfiguration, or when he raised the dead, or he walked on the water or did other miracles. Um, and in so doing, he revealed the fact that he is God. But by and large, he concealed the fact that he was God. And, um, and he allowed himself, you know, to be crucified as a common criminal. Um, and then finally, the, the apostolic or apotelismatic genus, um, the, you know, if you put in the word goal, G-O-A-L, um, underneath where it says apotelismatic, I think that's a good, that's a good synonym, um, where the, that each person or each, sorry, not person, each nature contributes something that goes toward the goal of your salvation. Um, that Jesus became a man with the goal of, of living under the law and carrying sin. That Jesus also is true God with the goal of fulfilling that law and having his death count for all people of all time. And so the, you know, where that, where that usually comes out is when we, when we talk about, um, when we talk about things like his state of humiliation or his state of exaltation, State of humiliation being that period of time from his incarnation through his death and state of exaltation from his, um, when he became alive again and for all eternity, that he does those things in order to, um, to bring blessing to you and to me. That's the introduction. And, and there's a fantastic little section in, in, uh, chapter 10. If you haven't read through that, um, give that a quick read through and, um, and that we will pick up again with that um, next time. <laughs> and, and if this is leaving you in the least bit confused, um, don't worry. It's not just because I'm, I've summarized this in a way that isn't the best. It's also because we usually spend like two weeks of this, two weeks of our dogmatics course on this specific topic at seminary. And then to try to, you know, to compress it down into like two or three um, hours is, is a little bit of a challenge, but it's a fun one. So next time we will pick up um, again with the, the person of Jesus and the, the three genera and talk about that with a little bit more, a little bit more color. And then that'll get us hopefully into the um, chapter 11. And we'll close with prayer. Dear Lord, uh, we thank you for becoming human uh, for our sake, for placing yourself under God's law in order to fulfill that law perfectly for us. Um, plant this truth firmly in our hearts and minds and lead us to marvel and rejoice at the fact that you, the Son of God, have become incarnate, have become one of us for our salvation. To the glory of your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>